You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part three in our series on Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortez and the conquest of Mexico. Last time, we concluded with Cortez and his men, about 400 or so, along with 50 Sempoalan warriors and a few hundred porters, marching west. Cortez wanted to reach Tenochtitlan and meet the Aztec emperor, Montezuma. Now, let us note that Cortez had no intention of making this some sort of diplomatic visit. He said he was there to trade and to get to know everyone, but he had conquest in his heart and in his mind. He sees Mexico as his for the taking. Up to this point, things had gone pretty well for Cortez. The Spanish had been engaged in only one major battle, a fight that they had won handily. After that, they had forged an alliance with the Totonac people and established Veracruz, the first European settlement in New Spain. However, things were not all puppies and roses for Cortez. He was conducting his campaign without the authorization of Cuban Governor Diego Valasquez, the man who had the official rights to settle and trade in Mexico. This had made for some uncomfortable moments, as some men considered Cortez a rebel. To counter this discord, Cortez had done a bold and remarkable thing. He had burned his fleet, giving no one, including himself, a way back to Cuba. He was essentially pushing all his chips onto the table. It was conquer this land or die in the attempt. So far in our story, we have seen Cortez as a bold and clever leader. He plays rivals against one another, ultimately to his advantage. In a lot of ways, he's probably come across as a wily and crafty guy, but one who is not afraid to take decisive and bold action when needed. However, what we haven't really seen is the vicious and brutal side of Cortez. So be prepared, because in today's episode, you will truly understand just how ruthless this guy can be. And just so you know, it will be bloody. So let's get going. The Spanish proceeded west, departing from Veracruz in August of 1519. Cortez rode at the head of his army, which consisted of 15 cavalry, roughly 50 crossbowmen, 30 arquebusiers, 15 cannons, war dogs, and hundreds of bearers. The column proceeded toward the city of Jalapa. The Totonac scouts went ahead of the Spanish, reporting back any potential problems as they went. By the way, I have put a map of Cortez's route on the website, explorerspodcast.com, so check it out if you desire. The initial march of the army was through dense jungles. The heat was unbearable, and many of the Spanish soldiers shed their heavy metal mail and breastplates in favor of the quilted cotton armor worn by the natives. However, the jungles would soon be left behind as the trek west became a steep but gradual uphill march. 
The column went from sea level on the coast to almost a mile high in elevation, 5,000 feet, at Jalapa. This dramatic altitude change occurs in a space of less than 50 miles. As they march, the expedition could see the snow-capped mountains far to the west, some reaching as high as 18,000 feet in height. That was their destination, and it must have been daunting. The army reached Jalapa, which was at the edge of the Totonac borders, without incident. The people had been friendly and cooperative. The route to Jalapa and going on to Tenochtitlan is best described as a road-slash-trail. It was well-traveled and the route was well-maintained around cities and towns, but at times it's not much more than a footpath. After briefly resting at Jalapa, the expedition would continue on, going higher and higher as they pressed westward. This will be an issue for many of the bearers, as the Sempualan and Cubans were just not dressed for the cold environment. Temperatures could drop dramatically, especially at night. The Spanish would eventually come to Aztec-controlled villages and towns, and no one was certain as to how they would be welcomed. Would the natives resist the Spanish, or would they flee from the army, or would these be peaceful encounters? The answer would be the latter. Cortez was pleased to find that the people were open and friendly. Not that these smaller communities could have done much to stop the Spanish, but Cortez did not need to be fighting every single town and village in his path. That would have just been wasteful. His powder and his supplies could only last for so long. As with every other encounter, at each settlement, the natives would be amazed at the strange-looking men with their beards and their fearsome animals and terrifying weapons. The big question was, who were these men? Last time, we talked a bit about this idea that the native people viewed the Spanish as gods. I want to reiterate that while this was possible, we don't know this for sure. Many historians think that the idea is more of a conceit of later writers. However, it doesn't mean it was wrong, at least to some degree. The Aztecs and the natives of the region almost certainly had some serious conversations as to the nature of the Spanish. Remember, the Aztecs had never seen anyone like these newcomers in their lives. Their animals and their technology were crazy strange and frightening. Without question, the appearance of the Spanish probably shook and threatened some of the foundational beliefs of many of these people. But we also have to remember that the Indians are not one mind. They are millions and millions of distinct individuals. Some probably did say, are these gods? While others saw that the Spanish could bleed and even die in battle and said, these are just men, men with really powerful stuff, but just men. The big thing I want to stress is that I don't want to put a whole lot into this idea that the Aztecs thought that the Spanish were gods and thus would not challenge them. But I also do not want to dismiss it entirely because the idea was probably true, at least for some people. Anyhow, back to our march west. Cortez and his army were now venturing into Aztec territory. If Montezuma was not challenging the Spanish, what were his plans? In a lot of ways, I get this feeling that Montezuma is willing to let things play out. He feels that fate will do something to the Spanish, which will eventually destroy them or send them back from where they came from. This had happened the previous two years, with both Spanish expeditions to the region being forced to retire due to a variety of circumstances. The Spanish were heading into rugged terrains, including mountains and arid plains, and there was a good chance that they would encounter non-Aztec peoples who would challenge their advance. These were all very real obstacles for the Spanish, and Montezuma probably figured, well, let's see if one of these will take care of them. In the end, he was just being cautious. Don't antagonize these newcomers. Give them a bribe or two. Let them have their fun. They'll eventually go away, just like the others. Of course, Montezuma had no clue as to the actual plans of Cortez, who envisioned conquering the entire region. In fact, it probably was nearly impossible for Montezuma to contemplate such a thing. 
The Aztec Emperor was at the height of its power. There was no way these newcomers, no matter how advanced, could entertain sweeping away such a massive and powerful entity. To Montezuma, the Aztec Empire was like a mountain. You just don't brush aside a mountain. Cortez and his army pressed onward, the mountains rising to six and 7,000 feet in elevation. The conditions became miserable, freezing rain, sleet, and hail, and some of the porters would die from exposure. And then, much to everyone's relief, they were out of the mountains. The men descended onto a rugged, arid plain. And while the cold was now gone, it did not mean that things would be easy. This region they were in was inhospitable. It was dry and barren, and much of the water was salty, causing those who drank it to get sick and vomit. The expedition would march across these plains for more than a week before finally reaching a temperate environment. At the city of Zoutla, called Chalcotlan at the time, they were welcomed by the locals. Zoutla was a city of about 20,000 people, and typical of the region. And despite the initial positive encounters, it was here that the religious cultures of the Spanish and the Aztecs would be put on stark display. In the center of the town, the Spanish would find a massive skull rack containing thousands upon thousands of human skulls, all neatly arranged in rows. Also, there were approximately 50 corpses, still dripping with blood, sacrifices to the Aztec god of war, with Pochli. This was a gruesome display in the eyes of the Spanish. But I want to reiterate that human sacrifice was woven into the religion and culture of the Aztecs. Sacrifices made the crops grow, the sun rise in the west, and gave the people healthy children. It seems immensely cruel, but to the people of the region, it made sense. Here, Cortes contemplated another forced conversion of the locals. He wanted to march his men to the temples and smash all the idols and clear the area of the signs of sacrifice. However, one of his priests, a man named Father Olmeda, dissuaded Cortes from acting too hastily. Olmeda argued that there would be a time and a situation to convert the locals to the Christian faith, but now was not the time, and Cortes would agree. In Zoutla, Cortes would speak in depth with a local chief, a man named Ulintet. From Ulintet, he would find out more about the Aztec Empire. Cortes was told that the empire consisted of more than 30 kingdoms, which each could muster over 100,000 warriors. And the capital city, Tenochtitlan, was a city on a lake, both beautiful and impregnable. Now, if Cortes had any second guesses about his advance west, he lost them when Olintet described the riches of Tenochtitlan and the emperor. Gold, silver, jewels, piles of it collected over the decades from the empire's various lands. More than ever, Cortes was determined to reach the fabled Aztec city. The Spanish would spend four days in the city, and while they were provided with food by the locals, it was meager fare, as the Aztecs were trying to discourage the Spanish from continuing their march. Eager to move forward, Cortes sent some of his Sempoalan messengers ahead to his next destination, the city of Tlaxcala. Tlaxcala was a place that intrigued Cortes, because the Tlaxcalan people were not part of the Aztec Empire. In fact, they were long-standing rivals. Cortes wondered if they could be potential allies. Thus, he sent his messengers ahead, telling the Tlaxcalans that he came in peace and that he just wanted to visit with them. The Spanish would spend ten days marching west toward their destination. Along the way, they were, on orders from Montezuma, treated well by the local people. I get the feeling that Montezuma was hoping that the Spanish would reach Tlaxcala and proceed to get their butts kicked by the Tlaxcalans, who were a fiercely independent people. On September 12, 1519, Cortes would reach the borders of Tlaxcala. Here he would find a stone wall, 10 feet high and 20 feet thick, denoting the border. The gates to the wall were open and unmanned, so Cortes ordered his army forward. However, none of the Sempoalan messengers had returned, 
so Cortez and his men were prepared for the worst. The reality of the situation was that the class Collins had imprisoned the Sempualan messengers, and they were organizing their forces at that very moment to meet the advancing Spanish army. The class Collins just did not trust the Spanish, as they seemed way too friendly with the Aztecs. The Spanish would have an initial skirmish with some Otomi warriors, who were allies of the class Collins. Two of the Spanish horses would be killed in the melee, and the carcasses hauled off by the Otomi. A Spanish soldier would also be killed. By the way, the native peoples will eventually adapt to some of the challenges of the Spanish cavalry and firearms. Here, the Otomi learned to grab hold of the lances of the riders and pull the men off their horses. A short while later, a force of several thousand class Collins attacked the Spanish army. Many of the fighters, who wore light armor and carried shields, had their faces painted red and yellow, or blue and red, or with black stripes, each color or pattern a recognition of their status as a warrior. Cortez noted the organization of the class Collins. They were sharp and quick to deploy. The Spanish countered by setting up their own lines, the crossbowmen, arquebusiers, and cannons ready to unleash their volleys when they were ordered. The fighting would go as expected. The class Collins had never encountered such warfare, and while fighting bravely, they would break when the Spanish warhorses thundered onto the scene. So much for these guys, or so thought the Spanish. It did not take long for the real class Collin army to appear. 40,000 men, prepped and ready for battle. The sight of the 100 to 1 odds made many of the Spanish fear that they were doomed. Bernal Diaz, one of Cortez's captains, would later write, quote, They put so much fear into us that many of the Spaniards asked for confession. End quote. The battle that followed would last for hours. The Spanish relied on their superior firepower and exceptional discipline to hold their lines, and it probably did not hurt that the men were desperate, as desperate men can achieve amazing things. Remarkably, only one Spanish soldier would be killed in the fighting, but many, many more would be injured. The Spanish would also lose two horses. Now is a good time to remember that the native peoples liked to injure their enemies, not kill them. Warriors were honored by how many enemies they captured, not how many they killed. They wanted live bodies so they could be sacrificed. After the battle, Cortez released some prisoners the Spanish had taken, having them bring a message back to their leaders, telling them that he wanted peace. The class Collins would ignore these overtures, convinced that the Spanish were allied with the Aztecs. Speaking of the Aztecs, around this time, a group of emissaries from Montezuma arrived at the Spanish camp. They brought gifts, and they even came with a major concession. Montezuma said that he would become a vassal of the King of Spain, but with a catch. The Spanish had to leave these lands now. Cortes would decline the offer, and he again pressed the emissaries, asking for an invitation to come to Tenochtitlan and meet the emperor. A second battle would take place two days later, this time the Klaus Collins being led by Zigotenga the Younger, the son of Zigotenga the Elder, the leader of the Klaus Collins. The Klaus Collins missile fire, arrows and spears and darts, was mostly ineffective in this fight, so they repeatedly attacked in massive waves, attempting to use their numbers to their advantage. However, these men would be in such a tightly packed formation, it made the Spanish artillery all the more effective. The arquebuses, which were notoriously inaccurate, were deadly, as any shot would hit one or more of the class Collins. The same was true for the crossbows and the cannons. The Spanish falconets would be loaded with anything, bits of metal, stones, whatever, and hundreds of pieces of debris would blast the class Collins lines. But none of this compared to the cavalry. The Spanish had learned not to let their lances drop down and focused on simply running down the natives. One author called the Spanish cavalry a, quote, killing machine, end quote. 
The fighting would wrap up with the Spanish lines holding firm. Again, they would only lose a single man in the fighting, but 50 or 60 men would be injured, some badly. And all the horses had been cut or injured in some way. Also, despite the victory, the Spanish were exhausted. Food and water was low. Also, they were forced to camp out in the open, and the nights were becoming increasingly cold. Exposure was a real issue, especially for the Totonacs and the Cubans. A respite is what the Spanish army needed, but it was not coming. The class Collins decided to attack the Spanish again, only this time at night. I have read that they did this because the class Collins thought that the Spanish garnered their power from the sun, but I'm not sure if this is true. Again, this could have been a story that was conjured up decades or centuries later to explain the situation. No matter, the Klaus Collins would deploy 10,000 warriors intent on surprising the Spanish in the dark. However, things would not go as planned. Moving 10,000 guys around is not a simple or quiet thing. The Spanish would take note of the Klaus Collins movements, and upon realizing what they were up to, set up their own ambush. When they were ready, they would unleash their firepower and steel on the unsuspecting natives. In the dark of night, it was another slaughter. The Klaus Collins didn't know what hit them, and they quickly routed. The fighting with the Klaus Collins was now over, and a good thing for Cortez. He had lost only a few men in the fighting, but dozens, maybe a hundred or more, had been injured. Also, the horses and men were exhausted. But he had been victorious. Cortez had used his advanced weaponry to great advantage, and perhaps most importantly, his men had held their lines and never broken during the fighting. After each battle, Cortez had freed some of his prisoners, telling them to return to their leaders and tell them that he only wanted peace. After this third battle, the Klaus Collins became receptive to the message. A few days later, some natives would arrive, bringing the Spanish food, and the message that Zagotenga the Younger, at the encouragement of his father, would arrive to talk peace the next day. And, as promised, Zagotenga the Younger would arrive on schedule. He told Cortez that his people had been impressed by the Spanish, and they were willing to become vassals of Cortez and the Spanish king. Also, he told them that his people did not want to just be Spanish vassals, but they wanted to be allies and marched to Tenochtitlan with the Spanish. Zegotenga said that he could muster an army of more than 100,000 warriors for such an affair. And thus, with one fell swoop, Cortes now had not just an ally, but a great army to boot. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusion supply. It had indeed been a great victory for Cortez. He had defeated an army vastly larger than his own, and he had secured them as allies. And there was good reason to want the class Collins as allies. First, the obvious thing was that they could provide troops and supplies. And just as important, they hated the Aztecs. This would make them motivated and trusted. Now, one other thing regarding Cortez's victory. Remember, there had been some emissaries of Montezuma in the camp, and they had witnessed the battle. It must have scared the crap out of these guys. Everything they had heard about the Spanish had come true. These strangers had arcane and powerful weapons, and commanded extraordinary animals. 
a mere 400 or so of them had defeated a force 100 times their size. No doubt all of this information was quickly filtered back to Montezuma and his advisors. On September 23, 1519, Cortes and his men would enter the city of Clascala, being greeted by Zengotenga the Elder, who was old and blind. Everywhere the Spanish went, people flocked out to see these strange newcomers. The Clascalans feted their new allies with food and gifts. Cortes would write to his monarchs about the grandeur of Clascala, saying it was, quote, bigger than Granada. The Spanish would remain in Clascala for three weeks, recuperating from the recent campaign. During this time, Cortes would learn all he could about Montezuma and Tenochtitlan. By the way, the Clas Collins had little treasure. Instead, they would give the Spanish 300 women as a reward for their victory. Now, let's be clear. This is not much different than slavery. These women were to tend to any of the needs of the Spanish. They cleaned clothes, made meals, and provided sex when desired. We sometimes tiptoe around the sexual servitude part of this, but it was very real and very common. Also, while in Clas Collins, Cortes would again flirt with the idea of forcing Christianity on the populace, but again Father Olmeda talked him back from the idea, which was a good thing for the Spanish. The last thing Cortes needed was to antagonize these new allies. By the way, in a nod to the religion of these newcomers, the Clas Collins would give the Spanish one of their temples to convert into a church. Cortes now had to determine his next steps. The Aztec emissaries, some of whom were still with Cortes, advised him to go south to the city of Cholula. The city, the emissary said, was allied with Montezuma, and they would be friendly to the Spanish, where they could go and rest and wait for a reply from the emperor regarding Cortez's request to come to Tenochtitlan. The class Collins, however, did not trust the Chiluans and advised a different route. Cortez would ultimately decide to proceed to Cholula. The class Collins weren't thrilled about the decision, but they agreed to accompany the Spanish. Also, while the class Collins had offered to raise an army of 100,000, Cortes only wanted 6,000 men. He did not want a massive horde of men with him, as it would be a logistical nightmare. Winter was approaching, and such a great number would only slow him down, and trying to feed it would be nearly impossible. Cortes and his army would depart Clascala on October 10th. So, next stop, Cholula, which is probably known to most people as a hot sauce. But for our purposes, Cholula is a city about 20 miles south of Clascala. It is also the city of the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl. From Cholula, the Spanish were told that if they went west, they could enter the valley of Mexico between a pair of great volcanoes. Cortes and his men would be welcomed when they arrive at the city, but the 6,000 class Collins were not. Cortes compromised, and his new allies would camp outside the city walls. Thus, the Cholulans would greet the Spanish with food and drink and show off their great city. And Cholula was a great city. It had a population of more than 100,000 people roughly the same as Paris and Venice. The people were healthy and prosperous and refined. There were fine buildings and expansive markets. Artisans thrived here. But what dominated the city was the Great Pyramid of Cholula. This was a temple to the god Quetzalcoatl. The base of the pyramid is almost 1,500 square feet in size. It rises up 217 feet and has 120 steps. It is the largest monument ever constructed in the world, even larger than the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt although the latter is taller. The site of the Great Pyramid had been used for religious purposes for more than a thousand years. It would have been an awe-inspiring sight and staggering. If Cortes had any doubt about the might and wealth of the Aztec people, the sheer majesty of the Pyramid of Cholula would have quelled those doubts. Now, what happens next is the subject of some controversy, but the end results are not in dispute. Here we go. 
the Chiluans, while cordial, were eager for Cortes to be on his way. They said they didn't have enough food to feed all of his men, and advised him to return to the east. However, it is here that the Spanish were alerted that something was amiss. While Cortes's class colon allies were not allowed in the city, some of the Totonacs with the Spanish were. And some of these men, who were allowed to wander the city, noted that people were leaving, including women and children. Also, Cortez's translator, La Malinche, was reportedly warned by a local person to flee the city if she wanted to live. When all this was brought to Cortez's attention, he bribed a pair of minor noblemen and discovered the plot was true. The Chiluans, Cortez was told, were supposed to trap the Spanish in the city, and then some elite troops sent by Montezuma would finish off the invaders. I have read that Montezuma's priests had delivered a prophecy that the Spanish would die in the city of Quetzalcoatl, and that this is the reason the Aztecs were planning the ambush. Now I say all of this is controversial because it's hard to sort out what is true and what is not. Cortez said that the Chiluans were plotting against him, but we only have the word of Cortez and his men regarding this fact. Cortez's distractors say it was all a lie, and only an excuse for what was about to happen. So, what was about to happen? Well, let us find out. Cortez, now aware of the plot against him and his men, or perhaps just deciding to teach the Aztecs a brutal lesson, announced to the Chiluans that he was going to abandon his quest to reach Tenochtitlan and return east. He then asked the local leaders to gather for a farewell ceremony, which they agreed to. They were probably thrilled that Cortez was leaving and happy to see him off. So this big farewell party was held, and the city leaders were led to Cortez's room. Here he had the doors barred, and then accused them of plotting against him. The Spanish say that the Chiluan leaders confessed to the plot and blamed the Aztecs. Whether that's true or not, it doesn't really matter, because in the courtyard below, hundreds of Chiluan nobles and their families were enjoying the going-away feast. And then, on Cortez's signal, his men made their move. They swarmed into the courtyard and attacked the assembled Chiluans, most of whom were unarmed. The slaughter began. Swords and crossbows and warhorses killed anyone in their path, men, women, and children. Some people fled up the Great Pyramid and threw themselves to their deaths rather than be butchered by the Spanish. And the killing did not stop there. Cortez and his men opened the gates for their class colon allies, who went on a rampage. Anyone they caught, they killed. It is said that not a single person was left alive in the courtyard where the massacre had begun, and by morning, 5,000 people would be dead and the city on fire. The Spanish would loot the palace of gold, precious stones, and anything of value. After a few days, order would be restored and the class columns were moved outside the city walls. The populace would slowly come out of hiding and return from the countryside to assess the damage and claim their dead. The massacre at Cholula was cold-blooded butchery on the part of Cortez. I do not doubt he suspected the Chiluans were up to some sort of treachery, but the scale of the massacre was obscene. It really demonstrates just how ruthless Aaron and Cortez could be. In Tenochtitlan, Montezuma and his advisors were stunned by the events. They would never have imagined slaughtering thousands of people like the Spanish had done. Of course, we have to remember, they would have had no problem marching a thousand people to a sacrificial death, but just butchering them in the streets, well, that was just mind-blowing to them. Montezuma is said to have retreated to a secluded location and spent a week waiting for some sign from the gods. It was then that he received a visit or vision from the god of war and sacrifice, Huitzilopochtli. A short while later, emissaries reached Cortes with this new message. Cortes and the Spanish were officially invited to the Aztec capital to meet the emperor, Montezuma. So there it was. The invitation Cortes had asked for for months was now here. The road to Tenochtitlan was open. 
Before departing Cholula, Cortez allowed the Totonacs to return to their home in the east. The Totonacs simply weren't accustomed to or prepared for the coming winter or the mountains that lay ahead. And they had served the Spanish well. The Captain General noted their bravery and sent them home with many gifts. Going forward, the class Collins would provide bearers for the expedition. It was now time to head to Tenochtitlan, which was located in the Valley of Mexico. The Valley of Mexico, by the way, is a highlands plateau. It has a minimum elevation of 7,200 feet and is surrounded by mountains as high as 18,000 feet. Access into the valley was difficult, but it had thrived for thousands of years due to a mild climate, abundant game, and good land for large-scale farming. At this time, there were five lakes in the heart of the valley, connected and controlled by a sophisticated system of dikes and canals. Numerous cities and towns and villages surrounded these lakes, their population numbering over one million, a staggering total for the time. The crown jewel of all of it was Tenochtitlan, the capital of the Aztec Empire, which was on an island in the center of Lake Texcoco. The other two prominent cities were Texcoco, which was on the eastern shore of Lake Texcoco, and Clacopan, which is on the western side of the lake. These cities, along with Tenochtitlan, formed the Aztec Triple Alliance. I have posted a map of the Valley of Mexico on explorerspodcast.com, just in case you want to see the specific locations of these cities. It's not essential for today's episode, but it will definitely help you in future episodes. Also, a quick naming note. In the last episode, I said that one of the Aztec Triple Alliance cities was Tacuba. I want to point out that at this time, it was called Clacopan, which is what I will use going forward. Both work, but I will use Clacopan. So up into the mountains marched the Spanish army and their Indian allies. The trek would be a brutal one, as the men would go as high as 12 and 13,000 feet to make the crossing. I don't know if you've ever hiked at 13,000 feet, but if you're not used to it, I promise you, it is brutal. And none of the Spanish or their allies were prepared for the thin air or the cold of this altitude. It was November 1519, and progress up the mountains would be slow, barely a few miles each day. The trail was rocky and slippery and dangerous. Cortez's army would eventually move between two volcanoes, Popocatépetl and Ixtasiwat, which rise up roughly 18,000 and 17,000 feet respectively. It must have been a stunning and humbling situation. Two massive mountains on either side, one spewing smoke out of its peak. Cortez would have one of his captains, Diego de Ordaz, and a contingent of men climb to the top of the active volcano. Ordez would scale the side of Popocatépetl, weaving through snow and ash and lava flows, to nearly reach the summit. I say nearly reach because they didn't quite get to the rim of the volcano as it was so hot their clothes began to catch fire. But when Ordaz returned, he reported seeing a city on a lake in the distance. Tenochtitlan would have been about 40 miles northwest of the volcano. He also saw a pass between the two mountains. Armed with this information, the Spanish pressed forward, battling snow and sleet and cold. Then, finally, the Spanish would make their way between the two great volcanoes at a place called Paso de Cortez, Pass of Cortez. Cortez and his expedition could now begin their way down. And before them lay their destination, the Valley of Mexico. Cortez could see it all, including the magnificent city on the lake, Tenochtitlan. There he knew resided the great power in the contest that he knew was coming, Emperor Montezuma. And so, with the Spanish descending into the Valley of Mexico, that is where we will wrap up things for today. Next time, we will bring Cortez to Tenochtitlan, where the meeting of the Spanish conquistador and the Aztec emperor will finally take place. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening.